personalization is still super hard. People need recommender systems when they don't know what they want. And so I think it's a little more of like a back and forth between the system and the person using it. Because if you know what you want, you can just go and you search for it and you just start watching. Any pixel that we're showing for our members, like how is it helping them make a good decision about what to watch? Those have been some of the major stages. And then you know, beyond that, we've been focusing on kind of also just increasing the level of like interactivity with the recommender as well page construction. So trying to optimize, you know, not just sort of the one dimensional ranking of the items that we have, but instead thinking about how do we take those and then organize them in a way that people can find what they want to watch. Deep learning is very useful for recommendation, but more in that it enables you to take advantage of the real form of the data you have when you have like a real world recommender system. The metric is like part of the recommendation system. Your recommendations can only be as good as the metric that you're measuring it on. To have really high performance teams, you know, you need to get beyond just being a collection of individuals, but really being able to, you know, work well together. And being able to work well together is things like being really comfortable with giving each other feedback, right? Because there's always opportunities for everyone to improve. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Rexperts, a recommender systems experts. I'm very delighted to be joined by Justin Basilico. Justin Basilico is the director of research and engineering at Netflix. He leads an applied research team that works on the personalization of the Netflix homepage in particular, and this is why we talk today with the support of recommender systems. He joined the company in 2011 and has a degree in computer science from Brown University and I guess is also known to many of the listeners as the co-organizer of the Reveal Workshop latest at Rexus 2022. He also co-authored several Netflix publications at Rexus along with several case studies on recommender systems. Hello Justin, I'm very delighted to have you on the show. Thanks Marcel, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I guess we have plenty of topics to talk about for this episode of Rexperts. I mean, Netflix has ever since been a great contributor to the community uh, with doing workshops, with presenting lots of papers and sharing a lot of research. Uh, I actually see your research blog post as really one of the great blog posts that is frequently showing new stuff. So um, can you provide us a bit of background about yourself? So how you joined Netflix and actually also how you went uh, into research in recommender systems? Sure, yeah. So I got into research recommender systems actually about 20 years ago. And it kind of started probably before that kind of getting when I was in college. Um, I was really lucky to kind of find my way into doing computer science and taking a an AI class that gave me a little exposure to machine learning. We learned about like the perceptron and that kind of sparked an interest in me in doing machine learning. And then I was able to take a class in neural networks. And this was back in the time where, you know, there was very little work in neural networks. That was, you know, not the major area of study that it, you know, in the application that it currently is. And that kind of persuaded me to go into grad school and focus on, you know, trying to learn more about machine learning because I realized I couldn't 
you know, you know, do that just with like a bachelor's degree. Um, and then when I was there, you know, I was, I was looking around for like a project, you know, for my fine kind of the end of my first machine learning class. And um, at that time, you know, my wife and I are really into, you know, watching movies and we would go to a blockbuster that was down the street and also happened to be like, right, you know, a few blocks actually for my grandpa. Actually, I used to own a bakery in Providence and we would spend like, you know, 45 minutes or an hour, you're trying to find a movie to watch that might be, you know, the movie might be only an hour and a half and it just felt like, oh my gosh, it's so hard to find things. And, you know, maybe it's a bit of indecisiveness on our part, but like, there's gotta be a better way. And at the same time, you know, my advisor kind of introduced me to this, like each movie data set and said like, oh, hey, there's this data set with like, you know, movie, you know, um, ratings in it and like, hey, you know, and then kind of put those two interests together and was able to kind of start, you know, doing some work and recommendation um, and then did that, as, you know, when I was in graduate school. And so um, kind of from there, you know, it was really just a, a unification of, you know, so many things I really like doing with, you know, applying machine learning algorithms. And at that point, it was kind of like more like kernel methods and using those, you know, trying to build systems um, and then also just, you know, really liking to try to understand what do people really like and enjoy and try to predict them to help you know make better decisions and so that's kind of how i originally got into it and the initial work was around you know trying to figure out how you combine collaborative filtering and content-based filtering you know back in the day so that was kind of the focus and then uh, from there um, in terms of getting it to netflix i then you know spent you know about six or seven years at sandia national laboratories um, working on like a variety of different uh, machine learning problems from things with, you know, trying to understand when people are in difficult driving situations in a car, in a project we had with Daimler, we built like a, a personalized internal paper search engine at the labs and like a whole <laughs> bunch of other things, you know, lots of different applications. And then at one point, Netflix reached out to me about, you know, this opportunity, I, you know, it was kind of going back to something I was really, you know, fond of the problem of recommendation. So that was kind of, you know, made that transition and focused on that again ever since. So one of the first recommenders that you basically built for others was actually a paper recommender system that recommended papers to other people based on collaborative filtering, I guess? It was more kind of like a content-based filtering because, uh -huh. you know, we didn't, it was a very small, we were just getting it, trying to get something started for kind of like the library there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was a very small pilot project. You know, there was definitely some, you know, engineering challenges with like, you know, how everything was put together and the latencies and things there. Um, so we kind of learned a lot. But yeah, I would say that was the first one that got, you know, a little bit of, of use. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know, we had done a lot of research, you know, in, in the group I was in there, we worked with like psychologists too. So it's like kind of computer science psychologists trying to understand, you know, people and how to like make better, you know, training programs and things like that. Um, so that was, you know, a really good experience, but then kind of was able to leverage a lot of, you know, kind of the broad view of like, okay, how do you use machine learning to solve these lot of different types of problems and then bring that into, you know, how to build, you know, kind of, uh, you know, personalization algorithms at Netflix. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm actually missing something there. So, and very curious about uh, what your point is on this. I mean, uh, you joined Netflix in 2011 and uh, yeah. in terms of recommender systems, Netflix has already become very popular before with its Netflix price that uh, took place from 2006 to 2009. 
So have you actually engaged in the Netflix prize as a researcher back then? <laughs> ah, yeah. So that's an interesting question. So I remember the day the Netflix prize like, came out, was announced. And I actually yeah. went to my manager and was like, oh, hey, like there's this competition. Can we work on it? And, you know, being, you know, Department of Energy Lab, he was like, no, I don't think that that uh, makes sense to, <laughs> to, for us to, to focus on. That's something, you know, that I think, you know, was, that was just kind of like you know, one of my, where one of my passions were. What I was trying to say is that the experience I had there kind of gave me like a broad view of like lots of different ways you can use machine learning to solve problems and how to make it easy to kind of put it into various different systems and including like, you know, kind of building infrastructure around that. The combination of that plus kind of having previously done some research and recommendations and coming into Netflix kind of put me in a spot where when I joined, we already had the ratings predictions system set up and some you know, ways of putting that together. But we were kind of really starting the transition of doing machine learning ranking and other and kind of really stepping up like how we were applying personalization in there. And so that you know combination of that, you know, being able to leverage that this broad view of machine learning and how you can use it to solve these recommendation problems, plus thinking through the systems and how to, you know, build them kind of put me in like a really lucky spot to be able to, you know, help work on those with a, a bunch of other great people to make that happen. In the meantime, DVDs disappeared. And on the other side, uh, I guess the way that personalization is performed has gotten so much better uh, in terms of finding the right stuff uh, much more quickly instead of having to go through a 45-minute walk through one of that video stores. I would also assume nowadays you can get a much better picture of what you actually decide to go with in a much broader sense in terms of reading, for example, a synopsis, seeing a short trailer. This was not possible back then. So uh, things have gotten much better and much more efficient there thanks to personalization in that domain. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the Netflix prize at the time kind of represented that there was a different type of recommendation problem in the DVD space because there was such a delay between, you know, when someone would select something, you know, it had to be shipped out to them and then they would view it and then, you know, mm -hmm. send it back. And so it was much more of like a, you know, a high level decision support tool. And so being able to try to figure out, you know, which ones you should try to kind of prioritize versus in a streaming world, we can show you more information and we can play trailers and we can, um, you know, you can also just start watching it and see, you know, how if it's something that you're going to enjoy from what you see uh, kind of within the first few minutes or not. And so it's more immediate that feedback loop and kind of the choices you're going to make. And so I think that that really kind of shifts the problem, shifts the kind of data that you also can use. You know, that's, I think, behind also kind of the shift in focus from like, you know, rating prediction to then saying, okay, I think more things like ranking kind of matches, you know, we're more trying to do you know, when, when we're doing something like streaming. Yeah, which already brings us to one of the first points that we want to dive into in this episode. I guess that most of the listeners are to a certain degree well aware of the history, but to get the ball rolling, can you walk us through the evolution of the recommender systems at Netflix? I mean, we already started with rating prediction. It's going far beyond than that very popular starting point to how you do personalization nowadays. Sure. Yes. Yeah. I think we started covering that a little bit, but yeah, the Netflix prize and the kind of DVD world is very much about you know, trying to figure out how do we predict what feedback someone's going to give for a particular TV show? I mean, I guess it was mostly movies at that point, you know, some TV shows that they would, they would watch on DVD. 
that was, you know, really the primary way that people would see the recommendations that, you know, those predictions were very front and center so that people kind of try to understand from the personalized nature of like, if that's something that they, we think that they would like and be worth, mm -hmm. you know, going through with that. And then, you know, from there, we then kind of transitioned from just doing that rating prediction to trying to come up with personalized rankings. So the idea being that, you know, what we're trying to do is just help people, you know, help surface the types of content that people are going to most likely want to watch and enjoy so that you can find that really easily on the site without kind of having to browse through lots and lots of, you know, different titles. And I think that becomes kind of one of the core parts of the recommendations of figuring out of all the things that you could possibly watch, which are the ones that you're most likely going to want to watch and then you're going to actually enjoy watching. And then from there, we kind of focused on layering on top of it, this problem of doing what we call uh, page construction. So trying to optimize, you know, not just sort of the one dimensional ranking of the items that we have, but instead thinking about how do we take those and then organize them in a way that people can find what they want to watch, you know, kind of no matter you know, what mood they're in or all the variety of different reasons people might want to be watching Netflix. How can we get them all the recommendations up there in a way so people can easily understand what they're seeing? They can have a real nice diversity of recommendations that kind of cover their different interests. And, you know, for us, you know, we found this two-dimensional layout of the content where there's these different, what we call rows of recommendations. So they have, mm -hmm. you know, some title um, that kind of explains that whole set uh, that we're showing that you can understand what's in it and decide, hey, this is something I kind of want to dig more into. And then you can kind of scroll you know, along the row or you can kind of scroll uh, up and down the page uh, vertically to kind of skip over the things you're not as interested in. Yeah. And I think that moving between that was like a, a big step because you're not only kind of changing the shape of the problem, but you're also trying to go for a higher level of objective, which is it's not just about, say, helping discover brand new things, but also helping people jump back into the latest season of something that just, you know, that they'd watched before that came out or, you know, the next episode of, the, of something they've been watching the previous evenings and things like that. So that was sort of the kind of one of the next stages of evolution. And then from there, we started then kind of focusing on not just kind of how we're presenting these sets of recommendations, but then also basically how do we explain them and like you know kind of help people understand what they are and, and, and personalize that so I, I think that was kind of really trying to personalize like the user experience layer that's on that and thinking about like any pixel that we're showing for our members like how is it helping them make a good decision about what to watch those have been some of the major stages and then you know beyond that we've been focusing on kind of also just increasing the level of like interactivity with the recommender as well Besides that, by introducing now the double thumbs up button that has, I guess, appeared within the recent year or somewhere. Yeah, so I think that you know, the, the double thumbs up kind of represents, you know, over time, we've tried to modify how we collect explicit feedback from the members about what they really enjoy. And you know, the star rating system kind of represented one way of doing it. You know, we moved to a thumbs system because it was something where people, you know, would be able to engage with a lot more and kind of better convey that it's really about you and what you think about a piece mm -hmm. of content and not just some kind of more critic rating or something like that. But, you know, it's something where over time, you know, we keep trying to evolve and improve that to make sure that the double thumb representing make it easier for people to tell us like, oh, they, they really, really like this versus, you know, it's something that they you know, just like, yeah, it, it was good, but this is something I really enjoyed. And so making sure that the system is really focusing on optimizing for those elements. 
Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned that you also are or were trying or adding more explanations for recommendations or at least for the titles being shown or for the rows being shown. Can you give a more specific example of that? Because I currently have to think about where I see or where I may see some explanations. What would be an example for explanations? Maybe explanations is not the best way of framing it, but like it's kind of just, we call it like the evidence of like kind of all the information that we're showing. You know, what is it that the synopsis is conveying? You know, what, it, you know, the images we're using, the trailers we're using, you know, are they able to kind of really connect and explain the content? Because as we're going through this evolution, Netflix is also moving more towards original content. And one of the challenges with original content is that there's a lot of new things that we made, you know, just for someone like you to watch, but you may never have heard of it before. Right. So you could have a really good recommendation, but <laughs> if someone doesn't understand what it is, right, because uh -huh. you have to be able to kind of, you know, show it to them in a compelling way so that they, they get like, oh, yeah, this is something that I'm really interested in. And so being able to, you know, make that connection and, you know, personalize, you know, what you're doing there. So someone says, like, oh, yeah, I get why you're showing this to me. It's not something that I might have heard about before, but like, yeah, now I, I want to spend time with this you know, and check it out. I think that's been part of the evolution. And I think it also represents a little bit of, at least for myself, you know, I think about like the early days, I think, you know, one of my personal conceptualizations of the perfect recommender system is you kind of just turn it on and just, you know, somehow knows the perfect thing that you want to watch <laughs> and just starts playing it. But yeah. I think that that's not quite enough because even if that was the case, you also have to like convince the person that it is that recommendation, right? Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. in being able to do that for something that someone has never heard about, right? Like it, you need to be able to kind of show and you know again explain. And I think we could do better at that, but also okay. you know, kind of what it is to, so they can kind of connect and say like, oh, okay, I get why I'm being shown this. People need recommender systems when they don't know what they want. And so I think it's a little more of like a back and forth between the system and the person using it. Because if you know what you want, you can just go and you search for it and you just start watching. It. Yeah, it's like that kitchen table talk that you might be having with colleagues. And then you exchange on the most recent series that you might have been watching. And then you exchange, you get new recommendations by people in real life. And then... Yeah. You would directly fire up, for example, Netflix and go to that very show without needing any recommendations at all, right? Exactly. Like, you don't want to replace that. That's great. You know, mm -hmm. you want people to have those conversations. Like, that's mm -hmm. you know, such a strong way of getting recommendations for people, you know. <laughs> and in some ways, what I would love over time is for the recommendation system to feel more like it's, you know, that, that friend or that person who knows you well that you could have that conversation with, too. Yeah. But in some ways, you know, where people do need the recommender, though, is like when they're not exactly sure, you know, what it is mm -hmm. that they want, like, that's where it provides the most value. So it's like, let's help you find something. And so that's why the way you know, you're presenting the recommendation, you know, the evidence that you're providing, and the ability to kind of have that back and forth with the members to understand like, okay, what is it you're in the mood for? Because everyone has like such a wide variety of tastes, you know, it's super you know, hard to just predict ahead of time what people want. And we try to do that. You know, we try to do it as, as best we can. And we, we keep trying to, you know, get better at that. And part of the reason of having like a page structure is that you can surface, you know, all these different potential interests that people might have. So you can try to cover them, you know, match all of them so that, you know, no matter kind of what interest someone has, you can do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the interesting challenge we have. 
in that regard, so um, explanations does not mean what we, I would say, generally perceive as Rex's practitioners and researchers. So, for example, explanations why I'm being shown that recommendation, but it's rather about explaining the content in various ways so that people are able to understand the content and then can better relate to it and basically better relate to it in terms of making a decision whether they like or dislike the content because, for example, they view some personalized artwork, but also they read the synopsis and this is making the mechanism of conveying the mostly original title to people more easier. Is it, would that be right? Yeah, I think of it in like the broad sense of, you know, all again, all the information that, that you could show there and like how you can use it, but then also... Like the, I think the traditional way people think about kind of the explanation of recommendation, that could be one thing that's useful to surface in some cases. And again, it's something I think you know, we could also get better at how we do that. But yeah, I think that's kind of the, the general idea. Okay. Uh, you mentioned another word that I found quite interesting, the mood of people and then tailoring the page to their mood. And uh, that makes me remembering the last episode that I had with Rishab Mirota, and we were talking about intent. So detecting what is the reason the user has coming to the page or what is the task that the user wants to get done. So talking about mood, which I would say somehow shapes your intent, even though the intent might be something more latent and then leads to you consuming some certain content. Going back to that mood or notion of mood, how do you detect mood or what would you say is mood or is a possible space of the mood and how do you detect it when a user comes to the page? Yeah, I mean, that's a hard one. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> when I think about it more, you know, I think in our context, you know, there's a few like high level pieces of trying to understand, you know, mm -hmm. again, some of these trade offs of, you know, are they more in, in the mood of trying to find something new to watch, kind of continue with something else that they've, you know, already engaged with in the past. Mm -hmm. I also think mood can, you know, match, you know, again, you know, for us, it's like kind of, we have a lot of different, you know, micro genres and moods can be part of that. When I think about mood, you know, it's not necessarily trying to predict the mood, but trying to predict someone that's in a certain mood when we're trying to figure out, okay, what is the kind of content that really, you know, would match with that? It's just kind of, you know, kind of this like latent variable that you kind of have to deal with when you're trying to figure out like what recommendations to surface and how to kind of have that good coverage and diversity in that set that you're providing. Okay, okay. In terms of personalizing the Netflix homepage, you wrote a blog post about this. It was, I guess, back in 2015. Yeah. I picked one sentence out of it, and maybe we can take it to go further from there. You said, part of the challenge and fun of creating a personalized homepage is figuring out new ways to create useful groupings of videos, which we are constantly experimenting with. So these useful groupings of videos. I guess they are the foundation for doing everything on top if you look at it from a bottom-up perspective for creating that final personalized homepage. So these groupings of videos, in the blog post there was a picture that said, okay, there are tens of thousands different rows that you come up with and there are all these micro genres. Can you share how you actually come up with these groups and walk us through the steps how that corpus of groupings given the user and the context results in a final page. So yeah, we have a team that really focuses on understanding, you know, all the TV shows, movies, and now games that are in our catalog and trying to think through, you know, how do you organize all of that? 
content so that it's really set up in a way that people can understand it. And so have people actually kind of watch the content and understand it and try to build a taxonomy of what types of content are out there. And they kind of, you know, maintain a lot of that and provide a whole bunch of these, what we call a candidate rows that's kind of derived from all of that understanding they have. And they're constantly trying to come up with a kind of new ways of thinking through kind of like what would be interesting groupings of this that we can kind of explain to people that would really resonate. And then in the page construction problem, they're able to come up with those and then we're able to figure out, okay, who these groupings actually respond to. So you know, we're recommending titles. We're also recommending like these whole groups of titles and recommendations to try to figure that out. So that's kind of like one way of coming up with the groupings that, you know, people probably, you know, most see those be like all these, you know, specialized genres, you know, mm-hmm. so they can, you know, be dark comedies from the 1980s and, you know, all of those things, you know, sometimes can really speak to what you're interested in there. But they can also be collections like, hey, here's our, our Emmy award winning or Emmy nominated content as well. And then, you know, we also are constantly trying to come up with like other types of collections that are maybe, you know, kind of more focused on different dimensions of the problems. Mm-hmm. Like we you know, recently added one that was like, hey, here's some shows that have kind of new episodes since you last watched them. So you might have missed them when they came out, you know, so you know, I find that row like really helpful for me because, you know, sometimes I'm watching, you know, some TV show and there's a new one that comes and it didn't necessarily at that point, you know, maybe I saw it. I'm like, oh, I want to come back to it. But then, you know, it's like a good place to kind of come in and and re-engage with those rows. So it's always fun to kind of think about like what are new ways that you can kind of surface these things, both in this kind of, you know, looking through and understanding the whole content space, but then also in, you know, coming up with these kind of new dimensions uh, or kind of more dynamic that we can kind of put into the homepage. Okay. In terms of that, I sometimes have the feeling like there's only just a single row uh, at Netflix that is just using pure collaborative filtering, even though it might be any of the many approaches there. But so many more that come or stem from these groupings of videos uh, that are then brought into a personalized ranking uh, to my demands. And of course, the item ordering within that specific group is of course also personalized yeah okay so and that means there's a whole corpus of sets that form these groups and now if i'm entering netflix so so how do these two points connect together so if you say okay marcel is there again we know about marcel he's into these certain genres or he has watched this the last time how is the page actually constituted that is there because i remember that for example also uh, in your in your blog post, you mentioned that you don't just do it very naively row by row because then you might enter the risk of having not very diverse rows. So you do it somewhat stage-wise. Is this something that you could elaborate on? What we try to do is so there is a huge space of rows and we want to, a lot of recommendation problems, like, you know, you want to have really good recall of like all the potential, you know, think of the rows representing the potential interests for the for a member. Mm-hmm. And kind of different ways of people being able to kind of browse and interact with the catalog. So you want to like have high coverage of that. But then, you know, when you're going and putting into a page, there's really very little or essentially no processing kind of out, out after what the algorithm is choosing. And so you have to balance like all the factors that, you know, are important in recommendation when you're putting it together, right? So, you know, the accuracy of the recommendations that we're showing and really being able to kind of get people's interest, but then things like diversity are super important and novelty is super important. 
helping you know cold start and you make sure that new content is being treated fairly in the system is very important. These new rows or modules are putting in, in the UI, like that they're being treated in a fair way. You have to balance all of those factors. You can imagine it's very hard to do that and just like, oh, there's one score that somehow you, know, <laughs> you can individually isolation, you know, score yeah. each item. And that tells you all about it. Like you have to understand the relationships between items, right? You know, one way of doing that is by, you know, reevaluating kind of the scores as you're building the page. There's lots of different ways of trying to do that optimization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we try to think of it as like a, it is a problem of putting like the whole page together. And you're balancing how good you can make that like total page that kind of balancing all of these variety of different factors that you're trying to go after, while at the same time being computationally feasible, essentially with like what we're doing. <laughs> and we had some also blog posts we written back in the day too, kind of explaining that, you know, a lot of our, these algorithms run in like a pre-compute mode for, you know, at least some of the key pieces of it. And so that's kind of how we can also kind of balance some of like the latency or mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, people who have like really long histories and how long it takes to kind of process and build those pages versus others. So that's why balancing the technique you choose to, that can try to put together a good page, um, which, you know, just kind of that the simple score and sort probably is not going to work enough for that with all these different factors and even little things like, you know, not showing duplicates, you know, uh, you know, really pervasively you know, through the whole UI, like some, something like that, which is like a very intuitive thing you want to have in the output of the recommendation system. It creates huge challenges because, you know, everything at every position, every time you pick something, it kind of changes, you know, what everything else you're going to show. And so how do you deal with that? And, you know, again, make things efficient and build a really good experience out of all those different sets of recommendations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of deduplication or having duplicates in, in certain rows, uh, would you say that this is uh, in general bad to have duplicates or is it okay to a certain point? So for example, because it might help you pushing some certain items or is it really basically like you want to avoid having any duplicates at all in the rows that you can scroll through or what is your take on this? If there's one thing I've kind of learned with a lot of the, the work on these problems with Netflix, mm-hmm. with you know, the teams, it's all these things are a balance and trying to find, you know, the right thing to do there. And so lots of duplicates, you know, is obviously bad because like you're just repeating yourself over and over. But, you know, sometimes duplication has uh, you know, a purpose or a point, right? Again, you know, just the way people interact with things or with our product and browse, you know, we can show a lot of different tv shows or movies on on a row and so maybe you didn't actually see it you know even though it was rendered on the screen so sometimes being able to show those duplicates is valuable but other times you know and especially if you put it in the context of you you might have skipped a row because the name of the row didn't really resonate with you but you know there was a good title recommendation there but then we might then say oh in this other (laughs) context is actually good so i think that's where it's challenging all these things are are a balance and you need to find (laughs) the right balance for what people want. And then sometimes these balances are something, this one might be hard to learn, but like if you could figure out how to personalize, like some people might prefer that, like because of the how, again, how they scroll, right? People tend to scroll really fast and they're not really considering a lot of things, you know, on, on <laughs> a part of the page. Maybe 
that's a sign, you know, that you want to make sure that some of the good content you might have been putting up on the first few rows get another chance. But mm-hmm. perfect answer for these. I think it's just you have to try to find the right balance between all these different factors. I really like what you are saying about the receptivity of the users, how sensitive a user is towards showing certain content several times. And even then you might show it in different ways. So, for example, by changing the artwork. Um, that that changes from person to person and that this sensitivities are not all the same. And then for some, you have maybe a chance again to show the same item and others perceive this as a, as a boring signal or something like that. I actually also have to think about your evergreen presentation and talks that you're giving that is always kind of a real good reference point. So the recent trends and recommendation systems. And I guess we will come to the uh, approaches just in a minute. But also something that I would like to start with is how misaligned metrics can be. So that going from a training objective to a goal is really, uh, let's mm-hmm. say, a sturdy path. How are you dealing with this problem and, and getting better there or creating more alignment? How far can you basically trust that your training objective you're optimizing for is the right one or that this is the right offline metric because it's better aligned with some online metric? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I, I put that in there. The example I have there is kind of a cartoon one walking through things like, you know, and well, the exact thing, but like NDCG or AUC and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, misaligned with what, you know, at least what I think, you know, our overall goal of like what we're trying to optimize for, which I call, you know, member joy. You know, which is just kind of helping in the long term. So just helping people get like the most enjoyment out of the entertainment they're, you know, consuming through Netflix and just the most out of their Netflix, you know, subscription. Yeah, it's hard because you have to go through, you know, a bunch of different steps. You might kind of have that, you know, very localized metric that you're trying to optimize your recommender or your your page construction or all these different algorithms Mm -hmm. for. And then you go to another level, which is kind of like, what's your offline metric that you typically might use to kind of, do offline model evaluation and tuning. And then there's the A-B test metric. And then again, there's that final overall, you know, objective like joy that you're trying to go for. And it's just, you know, align that whole path. You want to keep things all aligned. Mm-hmm. I think when you, th- you know, ask a question like, well, how good is it? Or, you know, like it's, it actually kind of depends on the types of models you have. So I think some of the models that we have, you know, some of that alignment is pretty good. Like you can see that like, hey, if you see a big increase in your offline metric, it kind of directly does lead to some online performance gains. And there's other places you know, where the problems get more complicated, where you basically can see more discrepancies there. So you see that, oh, it, you know, the model thinks it's gotten a lot better, but then online, it, it's not better, or it's actually worse, or that all the different levels of that can be kind of misaligned. So early on, I think when you start a recommender from scratch, I think as long as you pick a reasonable metric that's kind of Mm -hmm. roughly pointing in the right direction, you're probably fine. But as you get better at your, and your models get better at at optimizing that, you'll start to find that it's, it can optimize in areas where it kind of, you get into those misalignments. Mm -hmm. And what I found is it can be very easy for people to see these misalignments and then be like, oh, okay, it didn't work. Well, okay, I'll just try another idea. Right. But in some ways, like when you find something where there you have these big disconnects, it's actually like that's a good point to like pause and be like, oh, actually, I've learned something really interesting Mm, that mm -hmm. my metric is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. (laughs) And now it's time to like I should switch and focus on this. And so you kind of want to like iterate back and forth between them across time. Those are very valuable learnings. Sometimes you'll learn some like, okay, it's just some like kind of corner case. And, you know, most of the time it's fine. But 
generally it's useful to you know kind of go back and reevaluate and look at all those different linkages in that whole chain mm-hmm. of metrics and you know keep on improving them. Yeah, okay. I, I really appreciate that advice so that you don't go, let's say, the easy way of saying uh, using offline metrics is shitty at all, but rather use them. Sometimes they are useful. And even if they are not, they might provide you with some learning experience to to, to do better. Yeah, I mean, I, I go further and say like the metric is like part of the recommendation system. And like <laughs> I think about you want to optimize and try to improve like all parts, all the way from like the UI you know, to, you know, the data, the models, you kind of all the levels of metrics you have, like they're all different parts of, you know, how you can make your system better. And I've started to say like, your recommendations can only be as good as the metric that you're measuring it on, you know, when mm-hmm. you're trying to improve them. Again, you know, the offline online metric is something you can kind of think about and notice those discrepancies, but also thinking about kind of like, is the online metric actually representing like the overall goal of what you're going for? You know, we have a team of data scientists who, you know, they think about, you know, how do we make those better, we call like core metrics that we use. And one of the great things about Netflix is we do lots of A-B testing where we, you know, really try to make sure that when we're, we're trying to make improvements to the product, they really are kind of representing improvements that we see in, in terms of, you know, long-term member enjoyment and things like that. But also, you know, we have to keep on making sure you know, measuring that's very hard. So you have to kind of like consistently be able to make that better. And so I really love talking with those people and trying to think with them about how that works. And then when you think about this, that whole chain of metrics, you kind of have this big bias variance trade-off there too, mm-hmm. which is you can have very high variance on some of these like very online things, online metrics. You have to kind of you know, measure user behavior. It has a lot of noise in it. And then you can get very, you know, precise measurements of some of these metrics that might have a lot more bias in them because they've made a lot of assumptions. And you want to think about like improving that whole chain of them together across time. Yeah, actually, some area where this can really hit you very hard in the face is actually deep learning. And uh, I would say deep learning for recommender systems has seen a steady rise up to a point where it has, for me, become very self-evident to be applied to certain recommender scenarios. And uh, you were actually provided a case study in 2021 on what your experiences were with using deep learning for recommender models at Netflix. And it goes even beyond uh, with your work in bandits and reinforcement learning. So it's not the same, but I guess uh, the whole journey or that part started somehow also with deep learning. Can you introduce or share some of the insights that you are providing in that case study and where you could give some advice to use deep learning versus not using deep learning? Yeah, sure. So the deep learning journey at Netflix was definitely an interesting one. It was definitely when deep learning kind of, it became clear that it was you know really taking off within different applications within you know, NLP, computer vision. You know, we had a lot of interest in trying it out in the recommendation areas. The first couple times we tried it, it actually like, You might have seen some really good offline games, you know, kind of back to what we were saying before, but it didn't really pan out on the online system. And so there was actually quite a while where there was a lot of like, hey, look, we tried this. You know, at that time, there was still this question of like, is deep learning, is it just hype or is it real? 
And I think, you know, in the overall community, I think, you know, in, in for machine learning, I think we're, we're past that now. It's like it's made its way into all types of amazing applications. And even over this past year, just keeps going in terms of yeah, like definitely. building on that. But what we kind of learned is there's actually like a, a lot of connections between deep learning and what it was trying to do and a lot of what was happening recommendation at the time around kind of different types of like matrix factorization type methods. Mm-hmm. Because essentially what matrix factorization is, is, again, it's not deep, but it's doing pure representation learning, right? Because all you have is like a user ID and an item ID. You don't know anything about them and you're just learning, you're kind of learning embeddings and then combining them, those techniques would just kind of learn, you know, you just kind of multiply and then that would be how you learn it. And I think what, at least, you know, kind of we present that paper and kind of the takeaway there uh, on this part was that if you tune that type of method, right, because it's pure representation learning, mm-hmm. like you can get them to be, you know, very effective compared to like a deep learning method that you have to learn basically like the dot product of these two <laughs> representations it's learning. So it's like, all the representation is just kind of everything you're, you're learning from the data. I'll also say it's, I think, working recommendations. Like, I think one of the things that still, like, astonishes me, though, is, like, how far methods like that can actually go. Like, knowing nothing about the actual content of the item or the user, right? You can get so mm-hmm. far just with learning from these interactions between people. And I think for a lot of applications, that's really great because up until now, it's been very hard to get really good content representations out of something like, you know, a video that's, you know, many hours, you know, hour plus or many hours long for a TV show. I mean, it was actually one of your colleagues, Harald Steck, who provided a great paper on this coming up with the ease algorithm and also some some follow-ups on it where he actually, I guess the title was don't go deeper, go higher, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think coming back to that, I think that one of the key things, though, from that journey, it kind of if you're looking at classic user by item matrix type of recommendation problem is that there's a lot of similarities and overlaps between work that was being done for matrix factorization and some of the mm-hmm. things being done in deep learning and that we could kind of you know borrow methods from both sides to try to make things better so i think harold's work is awesome because he just kind of can keep pushing you know the learnings and, and building off of things from both of those areas to kind of show what you can do without you know the necessarily going very to the deep part but on the other hand what I say is like deep learning is very useful for recommendation, but more in that it enables you to take advantage of the real form of the data you have when you have like a real world recommender system. You know, you don't just have this kind of binary user by item interactions or mm-hmm. you know ratings or something in there. You 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 have these like rich histories of how people you know interact, you know, and engage with different items and over time and kind of all the context around them. And mm-hmm. the context of where things are being presented, and you know, there's just so much information you actually have, and then you actually have, say, the content, you know, representations and things you can start bringing in. So I think when you look at it from that perspective, there is a lot of work on like kind of different ways of pulling in some pieces of this, you know, here and there in the recommendation approaches. But deep learning became such a nice framework for just being able, to, like, you know, pull in all of those and kind of unify them together, and you know, yeah, extract information from what you can from a sequence or what you can from you know, time being kind of important dimensions there. So it wasn't somewhere just like it was such a clear step forward on kind of the classic problem, but it kind of enabled you to all of a sudden build a lot of different other solutions better. You've seen a lot of the kind of advances come from that. And then going back to what you're saying with kind of metrics, when you have a model that all of a sudden has a lot more parameters 
that it can learn and fit. It has a lot more flexibility in terms of how you, you can tune it. You It can find its way into those, you know, places where your different layers of metrics might diverge. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you have to go back and understand, oh, I tried something here. It may be the offline metric went way up. The online metric maybe didn't. Again, okay, that tells me something about my metric. I don't just say, oh, look, deep learning doesn't work. But like, oh, wait, something in my metric is off here. How do you fix that? And having seen kind of like the evolution of our systems over time from being you know, kind of very simple models to, you know, kind of you know, going through and becoming more complex over time. Mm-hmm. A lot of times what I found is that it's not necessarily just changing like one component at a time that necessarily unlocks the value. Sometimes you have to change mm-hmm. like two or three pieces of it at the same time to actually get that step forward because all of a sudden you're just enabling those new parts. So for something like deep learning, it can be, it's not just about changing you know the model, but also improving the metric and mm-hmm. kind of what it's trying to optimize for or you know, in other places, it's, you know, we change a model, but like all of a sudden that enable enables you to use all these features, maybe you've even tried them in the past and they didn't work, but all, you know, now you have a new type of model that actually can make use of that data. And that combination is actually what then leads to that really big improvement. Mm-hmm. Okay. I see. I understand. Yeah. So in that paper, you actually differentiate into two different categories, the sequential and the and the back of items approaches that you refer to. And um, yeah, you already mentioned that uh, most of the value for using deep learning does not come from the pure interaction, but rather from considering so many more additional sources of information, which are, as you said, context, uh, which are the sequences, the history, which are the content. When it comes to these two different directions that you are presenting in the paper, so the back of items mm-hmm. approaches and the sequential approaches, would you say that all these different sources of information are equally important for these two directions or that sequential approaches work better on some specific data or data representation as the back of item approaches work? I think, again, it depends on the, the type of problem that you're mm-hmm. trying to deal with. So I think if you have a problem where the sequence information actually really tells you a lot, then that type of representation and understanding how that flows is important. So I think you know, obviously something like language is like sequence is like mm-hmm. so important for understanding it. I think in recommendations, there's some places where that's the case, right? Like obvious example would be like a sequel, right? Like you probably, you know, <laughs> you know, if, if you if you watch you know, Empire Strikes Back, then going back and recommending the original Star Wars, it's like, yeah, you know, you maybe the person probably would like it, but they probably have already seen it, right? So, you know, you they may, <laughs> it might not be a great recommendation. And so kind of understanding like that there are these very natural sequences and there's obviously kind of like episodes and seasons within a show. There can be others of like how people get into certain genres and kind of how the tastes kind of evolve over time. Also, there might be some sequential information and recommendation may not always be as strict. You you might be able to deal with some reordering, which is why sometimes in that kind of like bag representation where it gives you kind of like a different, maybe more like holistic view of like a full set Mm -hmm. can be useful and also be more efficient versus say if you're doing something more like an LSTM or GRU. Of course, you know, with a transformer model, you can kind of get around some of that too. But um, yeah, I think it, it depends. I think like a lot of these things, you know, it depends on the problem you're trying to go for, like what your data is. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, we are already talking about also sequential models. And I guess one of the major categories that also helps us with in-session personalization 
how important is getting this right for you at Netflix? So, I mean, you can do a lot of the stuff, I guess, also offline, but many things need to be done online and also need to change within a session. So what is the role that this is playing for personalization and in specific for recommendations at Netflix and at my personalized experience to change adaptively to what I'm doing within a session? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important area. We had a paper at Rexis, uh, you know, several years ago about, you know, doing that on the homepage. And then last year, uh, a couple of my colleagues did one of the industry talks talking about doing that also for something, uh, a canvas called like the pre-query canvas. So it's what we show when you kind of land in search, but you haven't actually put anything into the search box yet. So kind of trying to understand if when people are in that search mode, you know, what it is that they might've been looking for and can we kind of learn like what's happening say from what they're doing on the homepage there. So it's an important characteristic of kind of building these more interactive personalization systems in the future. Yeah, talking also about one of your colleagues, I greatly remember uh, your colleague that has been talking about Rexus Ops at Rexus 2021. Yeah, yeah, Asan. So yeah, he he that was the previous year. You know, we've tried most years to kind of bring yeah. Some interesting aspect that we've been working on the, you know, the Rexus industry track. Um, so yeah, that was the previous year was on Rexus Ops, which is Esan had done a lot of, you know, work with a, a bunch of other folks on, you know, some of our algorithms there. And I think it's one of those interesting aspects that, you know, when you're doing this work, you know, you have to, you kind of, there's these practicalities you have to deal with mm -hmm. that you don't necessarily come up in the kind of the day-to-day -day when people talk about, you know, what they're doing with recommendation systems, but can matter quite a lot. And he kind of walks through this kind of framework for trying to understand, you know, how you detect and kind of identify and diagnose different issues, you know, how you respond to them and, and then follow up on fixing them kind of more deeply. A lot of the motivation for things like this is like, if you're building a recommender, and again, you're dealing with, there's always new items coming in. Like each item only you know, launches one time and you want to make sure that the system's going to work, that it's going to be, you know, treat that item appropriately. But there's so many, you know, say steps to like kind of, you know, setting up, you know, the, all the metadata and, you know, everything in, in the system to make sure that the recommender is going to be able to you know, work with it, you know, from day one. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a lot of, you know, kind of like one of the key examples kind of working through with this like Rexus Ops is kind of how do you make sure that, you know, a new TV show or movie launches, like you're going to be able to, you know, handle that in a good way. And can we detect the problems that could happen earlier? You know, one of the really interesting things there was like kind of the team was able to do was actually figure out like, can we predict what the model is going to do in the future? Right? Mm -hmm. so, so that we can figure out like if there's like likely to be a discrepancy there. Discrepancy in that regard would mean between what you expect, what or how the item should perform, and how it would perform if the yeah. system would behave as as predicted. Exactly. So, okay. can we predict what the recommender is going to do? And if there's a you know, kind of a big discrepancy there, that's been able to help us do things like find, you say, like there's some missing metadata around something before launch oh, okay. and be able to fix it, right? And so, yeah. But also. You know, sometimes you can find other types of problems from it and that you know, you might need to go in and do some adjustment in, you know, the algorithms or system that that's deeper. But like when you think about that whole these recommendation problems, you try to take like a very broad like application, like the, the, it's the whole part, like the whole system 
you know, really matters and you want to make sure mm-hmm. that there's so many things that can make the algorithms you know, not behave in the way you would expect for a certain piece of content. So you want to try to like, you know, minimize the places where say there's just like, yeah, like a setup problem or, mm-hmm. you know, some other data issue or something that, you know, causes these so that we can know about them ahead of time versus just reacting to them, you know, once something is already li- like live on the service. And you, know, you can't prevent all of them, but at least you yeah. know, there's kind of a framework for how to think through that. And sometimes this might lead you really to the point where you encounter let's say, just a simple causing factor or some simple causing factors. Like, for example, you said, if you see that there's a large discrepancy between what you predict the new item is going to behave and what you expect it to behave, then it could be really attributed to that there is some kind of missing metadata that you then need to fill in. It's hard to detect. It needs a whole system. So I guess there has been a lot of work that has been going into it. But in the end, it's, it's I mean, really nice if you can track it down to something that is so yeah, easily to fix. Because if you really see that there's a description missing or something like that, then you see what needs to be fixed. However, on the other side, what if is there some more, let's say, lighter discrepancies where, for example, after some initial search you see that the reason or is not as evident so for example where member preferences just have collectively changed in a way that this item is just not according to the taste of people anymore is this something that you might also be running into where you have some let's say more latent issues with an item that is going to cold start yeah i mean i I think as part of we think about rexus ops part of it is we want to detect the challenges that will come up because the system is doing the wrong thing versus saying Mm -hmm. like okay maybe our earliest some of our earlier predictions were off and so we have the ability to kind of disambiguate between those kind of in, in the different data we collect but you know some but you know you can think about using these types of approaches to kind of find deeper patterns of problems to kind of follow up on to understand if there's something more It can sometimes be hard from like just any one example, but you can kind of look at you know patterns of them to kind of understand if there's some pattern of of cases that might say, okay, Mm -hmm. there's some data or features or something in the way we're training the algorithm that is making it not you know kind of causing some kind of some of these patterns, and then that kind of informs saying, okay, let's focus on this, and that can be both on you again like the item side, but it also can again be on the user side. Mm -hmm. I think you know those patterns. they have with Rexus Ops is trying to help you again, you be able to detect those and identify them. And then, you know, in the short term, having some ability to deal with it, but then also being able to kind of dig in so that you can do these like deeper, longer term improvements that then hopefully just again make the system better overall mm-hmm. when you're able to fix them. I really, really loved that additional, uh, let's say, perspective on how to run a large scale recommender system and what could possibly go wrong and how you could prevent and learn from it. For the first time that I was uh, listening to that talk, I was at the very first moment a bit confused because I was like, what does he mean by predicting cold start? I mean, isn't an item cold starting just by definition that it's new? And then after asking, I really understood, yeah, of course. I mean, that is an interesting perspective in predicting how fastly that item will be consumed by users and Uh, get some, let's say, traction versus not being used and then not getting enough signal or something like that. So that was really an interesting new perspective uh, that was kind of nicely illustrating um, the purpose of of, of Rexus Ops there. One of the things, again, like I 
I love working on machine learning problems. I always find it super interesting when someone takes some like hard problem you have and then mm -hmm. figures out like, oh, actually we can like turn that into a machine learning problem and use that <laughs> to like get better at it. So it's like, oh, let's predict ahead when our algorithm is like, oh yeah, like that's cool. Like, or yeah. I also remember learning about doing, you know, hyperparameter tuning using things like Gaussian processes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, do we, you can learn, you know, this, these challenging things to kind of help, you know, with automating those. Like, and, and there's lots of other applications like that. I find it, it's just like a super interesting. You can solve some like hard problem like that, you know, in, in that way. bandits and recommender systems. I mean, this is some part where Netflix is very active, contributing regularly yeah. papers at Rexus and different conferences. You are also the co-organizer of the corresponding workshop at Rexus, the uh, reveal workshop that last year was held in conjunction with the consequences workshop. Can you share with us uh, what are the problems that you are trying to solve with bandits, with reinforcement learning, and how effective it is for you? Sure. I'll, I'll clarify one thing. I was kind of brought in at the last minute to help out with reveal. I had, you know, <laughs> kind of been involved, kind of attending and you know presenting and you know, you know sometimes giving some advice in the background in previous years. But yeah, like it was kind of pulled in at the last minute there. Yeah, but bandits has been a, a big area that we had done a lot of work on over the over the years within my team trying to figure out how to get bandits working in some various different personalization applications within Netflix. So, I think in doing that, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of understand what you can learn from the bandit literature, but then also there's some differences when you're actually trying to take those approaches and then kind of put them into, you know, real world applications. The first thing I, I kind of usually point out is that, you know, I think a lot of times when you think about something like, say, like regret minimization in a single bandit, that kind of assumes that like, that's the one algorithm that you're probably going to have there forever. But if you're actually trying to like innovate on bandit algorithms, like the what it's exploring and how it's working, like, you might need to kind of adjust, you know, how that works, so that you're actually collecting up enough data that you can actually you know, improve upon it and add new data sources, new features that might do kind of have very different policies. So you might need mm -hmm. much more coverage in the kind of the data that you're collecting there. Um, and then dealing with things like new items coming in, different trends and how kind of the rewards go work across time and different approaches to exploration have different pros and cons, especially when you have problems where there's like a very small number of arms versus if you have like a very wide number of arms or if the kind of the differences in the reward you might get from the different arms is, you know, kind of has a large variation versus if it's like mm -hmm. a small variation, you try to, you know, over time kind of understand these different problems and then kind of build algorithms and then also work on infrastructure to make it like even easier to kind of stand up these new bandits because the challenge with them is because they work in this, like they basically, it's like a closed loop. You need to have all of like the data logging and everything all mm -hmm. really well hooked up in order to kind of just get things up and running. So we tried to make that also easier across time and working with our partners in like the machine learning platform team and the data engineering team. Yeah, we've done a lot of work on you know, going back to the metrics part. You know, one of the nice things about bandits is that being able to do off policy evaluation approaches is nice because you kind of collect real data and then you see how much does the new bandit you're going to show that kind of are used, how like how much does it match or whenever mm -hmm. it matches what what actually was shown in, in, in the real system, you can kind of say, oh, this is what really happened. 
So if it's better at picking good things and, you know, it kind of is able to avoid the bad things, mm -hmm. it can build a better correlation between what you're actually going to see in the live system. So that framing is really nice and can kind of help you kind of like hone in that your, your algorithm is trying to, is optimizing for what's actually seeing in the real world. But then there's definitely a lot of challenges with it because, you know, you have a lot of data sparsity and variance issues and it's hard to like make sure you're covering enough of this space, especially with a lot of arms that you can actually get a lot of good matches there. We had a paper that we presented at Reveal a few years ago that was looking at bandit problems and dealing with what happens when you have, you're doing a recommendation problem. We have a lot of different actions. Mm -hmm. And the idea we had is basically just take an idea from like more classic evaluation of recommendation approaches where you're going to get very sparse feedback. But the idea is like, if you have a ranking of all the items and you can kind of get something that's good, like up higher on the list, you might not know the ones that are above it, if the user would even evaluate if they're good or not. But if you get the things people like kind of towards the top and then the things that people don't like towards the bottom, mm -hmm. that's a good thing. And so we just kind of took that same concept to like a bandit selection, which is like, if you have a bandit and it can get the arm that has a good reward and kind of like, Maybe it's not would have picked number one, but you don't know what would have happened there. But if you can get it kind of higher up in the ranking yeah. for a good arm, that's a good sign. If you can kind of push it down the ranking for a bad arm, that's a good sign. And so that was this metric we called recap. Yeah. So that kind of represents kind of like one of the areas of you know kind of metric improvement with bandits that we've worked on. But yeah, we're always trying to figure out how to kind of improve our bandit models and you know, where it makes sense to use them, where bandits don't actually make sense to use because they introduce definitely a lot of new challenges and complexities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that I find interesting is uh, especially the coverage part that you are bringing up there, which is a challenge when using bandits for recommendations. And what I always remember, there is someone saying that you appreciate having some certain intended or also unintended randomness in your system because it grants more overall coverage to the items you are having, which you can then, of course, use for several bandit approaches. So that, of course, intended, you are doing it with some certain exploration degree, but also unintended because you might have any faults or also some, some subtle problems in the system that grant better coverage across the catalogs that you are having. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think those like you're kind of alluding to some of the realities of dealing with bandits in, in the mm -hmm. real world too, is that like sometimes you're you might have a certain selection, but then for some reason that's not what actually gets shown or something happens. And then, <laughs> you know, how do you make sure that your propensities and all all of these kind of things you're you're using are actually correct? That's like another like really small thing that I've seen, which is like if those things are off like a little bit, like it can create huge problems in your metrics and you know what your models are optimizing for. So getting those mm -hmm. right is in the presence of like you know there's going to be certain system issues that could come up that your systems are kind of robust to that um, yeah. is super yeah. important. I think one of the high level lessons we learned you know, with bandits for exploration generally is, you know, if you have a closed loop system, like kind of have to have some ability to do some kind of exploration or else things will really not work. Mm -hmm. But if you're able to train off of like an open loop, you might be able to instead you use other approaches to kind of help compensate for that. So open loop would be like something like the homepage where if you can only play rows on the homepage, we need to understand them. Yeah, It's kind of like a closed system. We, we can only play from the rows that we would surface mm -hmm. versus like if you're doing just a general movie and TV show recommendation, people can go and search for things that are off the homepage. And if you can learn from that, that can help you kind of understand like the broader space um, and combine them. And I think that's where it also approaches like being able to use causal models and try to understand like some of the causality can be like a kind of ideas inspired from like econometrics can really help with 
kind of adjusting for those, which I know you also had like a previous uh, episode that was kind of talking about some of those too. Yeah. So then we definitely have a, a call to action there to the listeners who are also uh, Netflix uh, members. Please don't forget from time to time also to use the search function. Search is good. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, you know, your homepage is great. We'll try, we always try to make it better, <laughs> you know, but yeah. <laughs> it's good if it when it doesn't work you know search is there for you and <laughs> but don't deprive justin from all the data or the signals that <laughs> they use for bandits uh? <laughs> yeah we have been covering a lot of topics in terms of the approaches in terms of the technology However, what Netflix is also well known for is its culture. And I mean, there's even mm -hmm. a whole book about the Netflix culture that is called No Rules Rules. Yeah. And uh, just recently, Reed Hastings uh, has declared that he's uh, stepping down as a CEO and moving to become executive chairman. And he was actually the co-author of that book that stems also a lot from the culture deck. Uh, when thinking about the Netflix culture and how you deal with each other, um, what is it that you find is the most exciting, how to deal with others and how to collaborate together? So what is it that you can share that it really excited you and where you learned a lot? Sure. Yeah. I mean, being at Netflix for 11 years, I've you know, really enjoyed the culture. I think it, it works really well, especially for you know, the type of work we're doing in the recommendation space. And one of the things is, you know, when I talk to people who come from more of a You know, they've been studying, you know, machine learning recommendations in grad school. And, you know, we, we talk about things like, you know, freedom and responsibility and, you know, providing people a lot of context. It kind of, it really resonates with people because I think if you kind of have that kind of a little bit of that researcher, you know, mindset of like, yeah, give me some like hard problems and I'll really dive in and come up with solutions and, <laughs> you know, kind of, we can all kind of work together on solving things as a team. It kind of like resonates with people. But I think the thing that's amazing is that kind of mindset is like throughout the whole company, right? Mm -hmm. It's not kind of just in like a, in, in a research area where people are kind of open to, you know, new ideas and you know, trying to work together to kind of improve Netflix and, you know, and being able to kind of share a lot of information so that people can kind of take on these really interesting big problems and then have, you know, a big impact with their work. And I think you know, what I found sometimes surprising to people, and you kind of touched a, a little bit on this, is that the way it's, it works, too, is it kind of actually promotes like collaboration really well because you know, we want to have high-performance people working in really high-performance teams. And to have really high-performance teams, you, know, you need to get beyond just being a collection of individuals, but really being able to you know, work well together. And being able to work well together is things like being really comfortable with giving each other feedback, right? Because there's always opportunities for everyone to improve. And that really, you know, helps with people understanding, you know, where can we get better on a whole variety of different levels? And, you know, it can be, you know, technical things, but also, you know, with communication or other ways of you know, how we can collaborate better and you know, how can we plan better and organize things better. You know, that feedback is such a, an important part of that. Mm-hmm. There's so many elements of the culture and the values. You know, I think the, you know, the selflessness is also like a, such an important thing of being able to see the big picture, you mm -hmm. know, and being able to put kind of, you know, the you know, helping our members first, looking at the company view first versus like just, you know, looking at just, you know, kind of your own personal uh, needs first, I think is also really helpful for, again, people working really well together, prioritizing the things that are the most important and kind of being adaptive and flexible with all of that. 
yeah, I mean, it also shapes, I guess, uh, how you lead as a director. Is there something that you can share in terms of that? So, so your team that works on the personalization of the homepage is doing a lot of interesting, exciting work. How do you basically shape that team or make them be effective? Or what would you consider as being crucial to your style of leadership? My team, it's a kind of a, a mixture of, you know, uh, applied researchers who are kind of doing mm -hmm. this like end to end, coming up with ideas, you know, working really closely with product managers on, you know, where we can be improving you know, our algorithms and the Netflix experience or kind of coming up with new models and things like that and kind of working through, like, you know, what to prioritize. And then we, we try a lot of ideas and experiments um, offline with the data we have or, you know, sometimes need to, you know, figure out how to set new data. Um, and working with our, our data engineering partners on that. And then when we see something promising, we kind of put them online, A-B tests and partner with mm -hmm. the team that kind of, we provide the code and the models and they deal kind of with the kind of actual serving and all kind of the logic around on that. So the team itself is a mixture of uh, applied researchers and then some software engineers kind of focusing on the specific machine learning infrastructure that we need for doing like our, our page construction and other problems that we have. So the team, you know, it's really try to have that like focus on kind of like understanding, you know, what are the problems we're going after? You know, how do we have an impact? I try to get people really to think about, you know, the big picture and kind of understand, you know, the product and the members and kind of how what we're doing really fits in that and take a kind mm -hmm. of a, a broad view of where to improve things. And then I try to, you know, have like a very open innovation centric perspective of you know trying to get encouraging people to kind of come up with ideas and we try to do that both in terms of like when we're trying to think about the kind of the directed parts of the work we're doing and like what it, we want to like prioritize kind of being open to you know lots of different ideas from from different people about what we could do to solve you know some of the problems you might want to focus on over mm -hmm. you know the next six months or year But then because we hire, you know, really smart people who get into the details of how all these algorithms and the data and everything in the systems all work, we I then encourage them to also do some kind of exploratory projects to kind of understand like what could be that next mm -hmm. big thing that could really unlock, you know, kind of a step change that we're doing the algorithms. And we've seen some of our bigger algorithm improvements come from that exploration as well. I think of what we're doing is kind of this mixture of focusing in kind of on like what we think are some of like the important areas, mm -hmm. you know, for the business to improve and innovate, and then also spend some time kind of trying out new ideas and kind of exploring and kind of building out those concepts so they might, you know, become the next thing that, you know, we could see that big advance for. So it's, in some ways, it's kind of like bandits, you know, you kind of have, you know, <laughs> the explore arm, and then you were trying to just optimize and you try to do that. I find actually one of the hardest things to do is actually sometimes get people to do that because they just love doing the, the main thing that they're working on like so much, <laughs> yeah. um, which I, I think is good. And I think that's something I try to do is really try to match up like people's skills and interests and you know, experience with like the high priority problems so that you hopefully find that really good match there. You know, kind of like I was saying before, like, you know, we collaborate kind of my team focuses on you know, the page part. Um, and like we talked about some of the, you know, kind of evidence pieces and, you know, that layer as well. I have like a sub team focused on that. And then we partner, there's, there's another team that we partner with that does like a lot of the ranking algorithms that drive, you know, kind of the initial ordering of the rows before we kind of decide which ones we want to go in and select. Mm -hmm. And there's a team that does search. There's a team that does, you know, kind of messaging and outreach. And there's, there's other machine learning teams, you know, throughout Netflix too, that we partner with. 
a lot of it is, you know, being really good collaborators, you know, uh, working across these different areas on you know, projects big and small in terms of scope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that analogy that you're bringing up with exploration and exploitation. I had to think about uh, actually that term from your culture deck, so freedom and responsibility. So basically the responsibility for products that are in production or that are to be brought into production and also that end-to-end -end ownership there as yeah. some kind of a notion of responsibility uh, and the other one the freedom to let's say entertain new you called it the next big thing ideas and explore basically what could significantly change something or also to have the time and the freedom to elaborate on new ideas and for example to to come yeah. up with a poc there yeah yeah And I think, again, those, that's exactly right. I think that's where it's one way of like, we try to kind of take that culture and put it into action there. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's like one of those things that works, you know, really well. I think one other thing I would mention too, is that, you know, we also try to bring in a lot of different perspectives in the team. So, you know, when we're hiring, we hire a lot of people with, you know, machine learning background, obviously mm -hmm. having experience and recommendation, you know, can be can be quite valuable, but we also will hire people who, you know, they might not have worked in recommendations in the past, mm -hmm. but they have a really solid you know, understanding of machine learning fundamentals and, and some other areas. We've seen that, you know, by bringing in like a bunch of diverse perspectives on like, you know, a lot of different levels, mm -hmm. it kind of helps build the team so that we're able to kind of learn from each other and kind of solve problems together. And so one thing about working at a place like Netflix is sometimes, you know, it can feel like, you know, talking to people like, oh, it's Netflix, like, you know, you know, can I work there? Like, I don't know if I want to even apply, you know, we're hiring and we're always looking for really great people. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of open to people with like, you know, you know, in, or we like people with like a lot of kind of different backgrounds and bring them to the team. And then, you know, making sure that everyone can kind of participate in the discussions and share their ideas and, and surface those concepts so that we can kind of, you know, really be, you know, thinking about what the problems we're trying to solve in new ways and kind of continuing to improve all the like the algorithms and systems that we're working on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sounds definitely like a great enriching environment with lots of freedom, but also, no, there's no but. I mean, responsibility can also there's be There's a lot of responsibility, so. <laughs> yeah. So responsibility is important. So just being always to keep in mind like that, yeah. you know, the high level of, you know, that you're working on problems that are important for the business and, you know, where we're going and in that part. Making an impact, I guess, is for many people very motivating. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, in terms of making an impact and solving problems with smart people, what further challenges do you see for the future or something that you are going to engage with? I mean, we covered quite a lot already, but is there something very specific that you are dealing with, which is some major challenge for Netflix in terms of personalization, but maybe also for the whole field? Yeah. I mean, I put this in one of the talks because some, sometimes people are like, oh, is there still that much to do in personalization? It's like personalization <laughs> is still super hard to like, yeah. you know, try to understand like what is that great recommendation to be showing someone? Like how do you kind of respond there? So I think there's still a lot of challenges, you know, in kind of all of the different elements of, you know, that we, we've talked about. Of, you know, there's so many improvements to work on. I think about the problem of just making sure that, you know, we're optimizing for what people really want in the long term. 
right, as being something that's still like a piece as a field. And that you know, kind of goes both into the kind of how you define, you know, what is the objective of the system and improving that? And like, how do you actually kind of represent that and understand that and build a better understanding of like what, you know, people really want and how to help them get the most out of the recommendations that you can provide and the best experience out of you know, whatever product you're building. But then also, you know, how do you actually build the models that can actually optimize towards that? So I still think that's like, you know, such an important aspect and it leads to lots of, you know, very wide ranging discussions of mm-hmm. you know, a lot of different aspects of your know, recommendations and you know, how do you solve these problems and how do you balance, again, all the different factors that come into making a good recommendation. Mm-hmm. So I still think that's, you know, such an important area. And then, you know, I think there's always lots of just exciting evolutions of different techniques and thing, you know, approaches in the field. And so I think we're always trying to just keep pushing ahead on, on those problems and just keep, get better at it. Like one step at a time, learning from all the data, all the experiments we run and um, keep pushing on that. Okay, and then maybe part of what comes out of that push will or can be shown and seen uh, at this year's Rexus, which this time will be in Singapore. So definitely looking forward. And I guess uh, we can also count on you to be there. Or is this already been decided? Or can you already make a statement there? (laughs) So yeah, I'm hoping to be there. Last year was an industry co-chair. I'm an industry co-chair again this year. So Hopefully, we'll have the call for industry talks up soon. Um, I think that's one of the great things about the Rexus conference is that you know there's opportunity for people working in industry on all these problems to really surface you know, all the interesting work they're working on. You know, kind of in addition to all of the kind of research papers and stuff. So, if you have some interesting work to share there, please submit it. I guess if I could make a, a call out to your listeners, because I'm sure there's Perfect. a lot of them. Perfect. Yeah, this be, is the place. Um, who might be interested in that. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great conference and it's always great meeting people there. And it's a great community. And I think there's just a lot that, you know, everyone can kind of learn from each other in terms mm-hmm. of solving these really hard problems of trying to understand you know, what is it people really like and want. I think about recommendations as trying to like help, you know, people's lives just be you know a bit better, you know, day after day, helping them spend their time in, in useful ways and on things that they really enjoy. Yeah, so uh, if people want to submit to the industry talk and conference, then Justin is the person to go. <laughs> it's not just me. There's also, the, uh, we have uh, Luis and Yang as uh, co-chairs. Wow. Okay, that was a great tour through personalization at Netflix. And I guess there is so much more we could talk about. But therefore, we also do have the show notes uh, where we will relate to the uh, Netflix research blog, but also to the papers that we explicitly mentioned in this episode. Maybe as always, and uh, just given the time that we have already spent so far, um, I will constrain it to a single question. Quick and shortly, do you have a guest recommendation? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know so many people. I feel bad even like... <laughs> <laughs> like one. Maybe we could take that offline. And I can now you have to rank, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> no, I can't. There's so many great people I've worked with at Netflix. And no, in the community, I, I don't want to <laughs> single out a single... <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, okay. There, there are too many. So that means, uh, for the sake of fairness, uh, we will this time uh, have to <laughs> leave without a guest recommendation. <laughs> Yeah, Justin, uh, it was really great to having you on the show. And uh, thank you so much for sharing so much of the great work that you are doing and giving us some insights there, some pointers, but also a better understanding of the challenges that you're dealing with and giving us a glimpse into yeah, how people actually work together and work together effectively at Netflix. So it was a great learning experience having you. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's great chatting with you, too. Yeah, then I wish you all the best and enjoy your weekend. Yeah, you too. So great. Thank you and see you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts, the podcast that brings you the experts in recommender systems. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast player and please share it with anybody you think might benefit from it. Please also leave a review on Podchaser. And last but not least, if you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have in my show or any other suggestions, drop me a message on Twitter or send me an email to marcel at rexperts.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing and make sure not to miss the next episode because people who listen to this also listen to the next episode. See you. Goodbye. Goodbye.